Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Rob Fendren. I'm a professor of astrophysics here at Oxford. Um, my particular research speciality is to work on observations of black holes and neutron stars, in particular those in binary systems. So these are, these are a kind of system which I'll explain towards the end of the talk, where a black hole actually transfers material onto something like a neutron star or black hole. But before, um, I, uh, before I get to that part of the story, let me start um, a little bit more at the beginning in more familiar surroundings. So you all know about stars. So when you look up at the night sky, you see stars. Um, and stars come in all shapes. No, they don't. Stars come in all sizes and temperatures. Um, and our star, the Sun, is, uh, is the nearest example of a star, uh, of course. It's the center of our solar system. It keeps us alive and it keeps the Earth bound uh, to it by its gravitational pull. And the Sun is a relatively normal, boring star. This is, a, this is a view of the Sun that you don't very often see. If you look at the Sun in high energies, for example, uh, uh, narrow optical filters, narrow optical wavelengths, where you can see the excitation of some atoms, or simply just in x-rays, which tells you about parts of the sun which are very, very hot, then the sun looks a little bit different um, from the normal uh, pale uh, yellow globe that you sometimes see in the sky, although not, unfortunately, today, I think. The sun will last for another four and a half billion years. It's about halfway through its lifetime. We have a long, long time left in the lifetime of the Sun. It's also a relatively low-mass star, although, in fact, in the universe, most of the stars in the universe are probably even at lower masses, okay? But in the whole spectrum of the masses of stars, it's a relatively low-mass star. However, some stars are much, much more massive than the Sun. So, this is an illustration, approximately to scale, of the star Betelgeuse next to our sun. So if our sun were this little pale yellow circle here, then this is a part of the surface of the star Betelgeuse. And Betelgeuse is a red supergiant star. So the name very much gives you the impression of the kind of star it is. It's red because it's a bit lower temperature at its surface than our sun is. And it's a supergiant because it's very, very big. If you go out in the night sky, and if you're able to identify the constellation Orion, then actually it's very easy to identify which star is Betelgeuse. So this is, a, this is a nice deep picture of the night sky that you should be able to identify on a clear winter's evening. Here's the belt of Orion, which most people are able to identify. And here are the four corner stars of Orion. So here's the top of his tunic and here's the bottom. The lower right star is also a very, very massive star, but this one is much, much hotter. It's called Rigel. Um, but uh, uh, the top left star is the star Betelgeuse, which I'm talking about. And Betelgeuse is this red supergiant star, which is much, much larger than our own sun. And this is a star which, um, over, uh, if you imagine its fractional lifetime, is much, much further towards the end of its lifetime than our own sun is. To give you some idea of how big Betelgeuse really is, 
here's a schematic. So here's our sun, that little red dot you see in the center here. And this circle here is the orbit of Earth around the sun. This one here. Ignore Deneb, that's just some other star, also quite a big one. And what you see is that the yellow, the edge of the yellow sphere here, this is the size of the star Betelgeuse. So if we took our sun and replaced it with Betelgeuse, then the whole of the orbit of the Earth would already be inside of this star. Now, the fate of our own sun will be that in about four billion years' time, it starts shedding its outer layers, and the centre of the star slowly cools away and produces something which is very hot, but which is about the size of the Earth, and that's a, an object called a white dwarf star. And I won't talk about those further today. However, very massive stars like Betelgeuse, like Rigel, and like a few percent perhaps of the, the or less than a one percent of the population of all the stars in the universe, will undergo a far more dramatic end to their lifetimes. And they will go through something called a supernova explosion. Yes, I know there's no sound in space, but it's a, it's a nice effect. So a supernova explosion occurs when a very, very massive star... So the way that stars work, of course, there is intense gravitational pressure is trying to make the star collapse down to a single point at its centre. And as we'll see shortly, that process can't always be stopped. But there is a lot of heat being generated in the centre of the star due to the fusion processes that go on there, and that heat also produces a pressure which pushes outwards. Okay? So the reason that stars do not collapse down to a single point during most of their lifetime is because they're producing a lot of heat and pressure in the centre, which counteracts the gravitational force which makes the star want to collapse. However, at some point, all of the fuel in the centre of the star ex is exhausted and they start burning through the elements more and more rapidly until they get to iron. And at the point of iron, when you fuse two iron atoms together, in fact, you don't produce any more heat and, in fact, you take heat in. So suddenly, the star cannot survive against the pressure, the, the force of gravity, and the whole of the star collapses inwards. Okay. Now, sometimes the star produces a thing called a neutron star, in which case there will be an enormous bounce because a huge amount of matter from the outer layers of the star collapses down at nearly the speed of light and hits a solid object in the centre. And that produces a thing called a supernova explosion, of which this is an artist's impression. These explosions of very massive stars can also produce objects called black holes, which I'll return to in a moment. And actually, one of the mysteries in astrophysics at the moment is whether or not when a very massive star explodes, or sorry, when a very massive star comes to the end of its life and collapses, do those stars that ultimately produce black holes, do they produce supernovae or not? And in fact, we don't know. So supernovae were discovered by people looking up at the night sky and saying, look, there's a new star. So they, they come um, uh, originally from the word nova, which just means new. So people looked up at the night sky, they saw a new star, and they said, That's, you know, we call this a nova. And then very, very, very bright ones, they said, well, we'll call those supernovae. So now people make a, a business, astrophysicists make a business of surveying the sky all the time for supernovae. And what they do is they take their optical telescopes like the one here on the roof, and they sweep the sky and they try to look for new stars. Sorry. So what I'm showing you here, this is a movie of 100 years of searching for supernovae with optical telescopes. 
So what you see here is this is the projection of our own galaxy, our own Milky Way. It's in a particular projection, such, but this is all optical light. It's the kind of light you're familiar with. And this is the whole sky compressed so to, to, into a certain projection. So this is the direction of the centre of the galaxy. This is the plane of our galaxy. So you can see little winking lights flashing all over this. This is the real date. This is not, uh, this is not made up. And those are real supernovae which were discovered at those dates. Every single one of those supernovae is a massive star which has exploded and probably, in, in the vast majority of cases, has left behind a kind of stellar remnant that we call a neutron star. You see, as we start to approach the present, the rate of supernovae dramatically increased. This surprised people. No, of course, that's not what happened. What happened is that people started surveying the sky more and more systematically for supernovae. It's not that the rate of supernovae started increasing, just that we found more and more of them. And you saw there, I think, you saw strips. This is incredible, right? Every single one of those is a star exploding, a massive star exploding. And you saw strips like this. Um, and that's, of course, not because the supernovae are physically concentrated somehow in some strip in the sky, but in fact because large telescopes decide, you know what, we're just, we know this, this area of sky very well, we have deep images of it, we're going to keep surveying this part of sky so we'll pick out any new supernovae, and we go deeper and deeper with bigger and bigger telescopes, and that's how people find these things. So what happens, what's left after one of these stars explodes in a supernovae? So it's, um, it's appropriate that it's Chinese New Year today, because in, uh, it's a tenuous connection, but in 1054 AD, the Chinese noted in the sky a supernova. And it was so bright, in fact, um, and the reason it was so bright is because it was actually within our own galaxy. Um, it's a bit of a mystery as to why no Western, there are no Western reports of this supernova, which was so bright it was a daytime object, but there you go. So this is, this is what's left now of a star that exploded relatively nearby in the cosmic scheme of things in the year 1054. And this is a very large nebula of very, very, very hot gas, so part of what you're seeing here is the outer remnants of the star, which were thrown off just before the star exploded, and part of the outside edge of the nebula is where this material and high-energy um, particles from a central source are running into all the surrounding gas and dust that's there in what we call the interstellar medium, the stuff between the stars. So in a lot of these supernova remnants, there's actually nothing at the centre um, which, again, is a little bit of a mystery, although we have possible explanations for that. But in the Crab Nebula, there is an object which is right at the centre. And that object is a kind of object which we call a neutron star. And this is an object which was discovered by Jocelyn Bell back in 1967. Um, some of you may have heard the story. It's a, there's a, it's a very interesting, long... Um, story and interesting for a variety of reasons, but originally they found, they strung up some wires essentially in a nutshell, they strung up some wires in a field in Cambridge and detected some pulsing signals and after a bit of, um, a bit of uh, to and fro realised that these signals must be coming from space. Um, regular pulses coming from space, they named the first four of these objects LGM1234 and kept them very quiet. Little green men is what this stood for. So for a while, people actually thought that these objects were intelligent life, um, and we were picking up signals. But um, we now know what they are, is they are 
They are the remnants of a star, so they are something that's about the mass of our sun, compressed into something only 10 kilometers across, and they are extremely rapidly rotating, and this is a neutron star. So, um, when these very, very massive stars explode, what's left afterwards is either a neutron star or a black hole. Um, and uh, these are the most extreme objects in the universe. So these are in the, at, the, at the surface of neutron stars and in the environments around neutron stars and black holes. Uh, there are conditions which it won't surprise you to understand are way beyond anything we could ever create in a laboratory on Earth. Okay, so you can imagine, if you ever came close to a neutron star, you would be pulled down by the gravity so hard to the surface, you'd hit the Earth, it'd splatter all over it like a scrambled egg. So neutron stars, they weigh about one and a half times, or maybe one times the mass of the sun, they're about 10 kilometers across. They have extraordinarily intense physical conditions. However, that's not the end point. If you took a neutron star, and in your, in your huge vice, and you squeezed it to about half its size, then the gravitational pull would be so strong that not even the internal pressure of the neutrons, which is what keeps the neutron star alive, uh, stable, would be enough to stop gravity. So once you go beyond that point, the black hole, the, the, what's left of the neutron star, will just collapse to a point, okay? And this will happen for any object if you compress it small enough. So if you took the Earth and compressed it to about two centimetres across, the same thing would happen. So what happens then is all the matter rapidly falls to the centre. There is no known force left that can stop it. However, so this would be a very, very interesting thing to see, right? And this probably shows you where quantum mechanics and general relativity meet, which is, you know, one of the, one of the very big um, unsolved things in physics at the moment is how do you reconcile quantum mechanics um, and general relativity. However, we can't see this, this key to the new physics because there's a region around the black hole within which no, from within which no signal can ever propagate out towards us. And that's simply because when you come close enough to this, this thing that's left at the center of a black hole, the escape speed becomes faster than the speed of light. Okay? So you actually you end up with a region in space delimited by this thing called the event horizon. This region is empty apart from a point in the center, which we call the singularity, and where we don't know what physics is going on. Okay, so how do people study these objects? Well, um, uh, back in the 1960s, people had the idea to launch rockets into the uh, lower atmosphere and look for X-rays from space. So lots of experts said, that, well, this is pointless. There'll be no X-rays from space. You might find some from the sun. These experts were wrong. Um, this, in fact, is what happens if you look up at the sky in X-rays. So this is the same kind of projection I showed you before. This is the plane of our galaxy. This is the whole sky. This is the direction of the center of our galaxy. And what you see is a whole load of individual objects. And actually, we can measure the temperatures and luminosities of these objects. So these objects are hundreds of thousands of times more luminous than our own sun. They can vary on timescales of milliseconds, however, which means they must be very, very small. And they are at temperatures of maybe 10 or 100 million Kelvin, which, you know, 
give or take a 273 is the same as centigrade. This is extraordinarily high temperatures. And what we think is happening in all of these systems, in fact, what we know is happening in all of these systems, is that matter is falling down towards a neutron star or a black hole in some kind of binary system. And the matter, as it falls down towards the black hole or neutron star, becomes extraordinarily hot. So just like the escape speed from just above a black hole is essentially the speed of light, if you drop something from far away and let it fall down towards a black hole, when it's falling down, it will hit just about the speed of light. And you can imagine you have all this stuff falling down, it rubs against each other, it gets very, very hot. And that's what produces the x-rays that we see in that movie. So just very briefly, a little bit about my own work. We observe these kind of sources in x-rays, but we also point radio telescopes at them. Um, people knew for a while that these kind of objects, sometimes when they became bright in x-rays, also became bright when observed with radio telescopes. But people didn't always understand why. But with radio telescopes, you can sometimes make very, very fine images. Okay? So you can see things in exquisite detail. So what you're going to see in the next slide um, are a sequence of radio images that we made of one of these X-ray sources. So here's the X-ray map of the sky that I showed you previously. That source there has the very interesting name, GRS 1915 plus 105. It's something like a 15 solar mass black hole in a 33-day orbit with a regular star from which it is accreting matter. So it's taking matter from the other star. The matter falls down towards the black hole, gets very, very hot. Sometimes it gets brighter in X-rays because more matter is falling down towards it. And it then also becomes brighter in radio. So we took, uh, we took radio observations at very high angular resolution of this object when it became very bright in X-rays one time. And this is what we saw. Now, these are real data. So they look a little bit messy. Okay, These are not artist impressions. This is a sequence of daily images we made with a radio telescope. The black hole is around here. So what you're seeing in these images is multiple sets of blobs, scientific term, of matter moving away from the central object. And of course, we have an idea how far away this object is. And we can see how far they appear to be moving each day, which tells us their speed. And these blobs are moving at about the speed of light. And each one contains something like the mass of Mount Everest. Okay? So via some mechanism that we entirely do not understand, although some of my theorist colleagues would disagree with me, we matter falls down towards black holes. We all know it should just fall in across the event horizon because that's how it's pictured in movies. But in fact, that's not what happens. For some reason that we really don't understand, the matter fires away from the black hole. So just to, to put that in picture form, this is what's happening. This is a regular, this is a more or less normal star which finds itself somehow in a binary, bound by gravity in a binary system with a black hole or a neutron star. The matter comes off of the regular star at some point in its evolution when the stars get too close together. It spirals down towards the black hole. It becomes very, very hot, which produces the X-rays. And at some point, it fires off these very, very relativistic, these very fast-moving columns of matter, which produce the jets. So what are the next steps in our kind of research? The next steps will be to use bigger and bigger radio telescopes. So myself and many people here are involved in a project called the Square Kilometre Array. Um, the Square Kilometre Array will build a radio telescope that is 100 times larger 
than all the existing radio telescopes on the Earth combined and will be situated jointly in South Africa and Western Australia. And we're going to observe this kind of phenomena of the matter flying away from these black holes in much, much more detail than previously. And with that, I will finish. And thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.